Book 4 Chapter 1 Throughout that nine-year period, from my nineteenth year to my twenty-eighth, I was astray myself and led others astray, was deceived and deceived others in various forms of self-assertion, publicly by the teaching of what are called the liberal arts, privately under the false name of religion, in the one proud, in the other superstitious, in both vain. On the one side of my life I pursued the emptiness of popular glory and the applause of spectators, with competition for prize poems and strife for garlands of straw, and the vanity of stage shows and untempered lusts. On the other side I was striving to be made clean of all this same filth, by bearing food to those who were called elect and holy, that in the factory of their own stomachs they should turn it into angels and deities by whom I was to be set free. And I followed out this line of conduct, and so did my friends who were deceived by me and with me. Let the proud of heart deride me now, and all who have never been brought low and broken by thee unto salvation, O my God. It is only for thy glory that I confess to thee all my ingloriousness. Grant me, I beseech thee, to retraverse now in memory the past ways of my error, and to offer thee a sacrifice of rejoicing. For without thee, what am I but a guide to my own destruction? Or at my best, what am I but an infant suckled on thy milk and feeding upon thee, O food incorruptible? What indeed is any man, seeing that he is but a man? Let the strong in their own power mock on, I in my weakness and neediness will confess unto thee. Chapter 2 In those years I taught the art of rhetoric, Overcome myself by the desire of money, I offered for sale skill and speech to overcome others by. But you know, O Lord, I preferred to have honest scholars, as honesty is nowadays reckoned. And without guile I taught them guilefulness, that they might use it not against the life of an innocent man, but for the life of a guilty man. And you, O God, saw me far from you, stumbling in that slippery way, showing amidst much smoke some small spark of honor. For in my schoolmastership I honestly did my best for men who loved vanity and sought after lying and in truth I was one with them. In those years I took one woman, not joined to me in lawful marriage, but one whom wandering lust and no particular judgment had brought my way. Yet I had but that one woman, and I was faithful to her. And with her I learned by my own experience what a gulf there is between the restraint of the marriage covenant entered into for the sake of children, and the mere bargain of a lustful love, where if children come, they come unwanted, though when they are born they compel our love. I remember once, when I had made up my mind to enter a contest for a poem to be recited on the stage, some magician, I have forgotten his name, demanded how much I would be willing to give him to be certain of victory. I loathed and abominated the filthy rites they practiced, and I told him that if the wreath were of gold and immortal at that, I would not allow a fly to be slain that I might win it. For it seems that he was to slay certain living creatures in his rites, and by such compliments to persuade the devils to favor me. Yet, O God of my heart, it was not from any purity towards you that I rejected this evil thing. I did not know how to love you, since in its thinking upon you my mind did not rise above a sort of material resplendence. A soul that pants after such idle imaginations simply commits fornication against you, and trusts in shadows and feeds the winds. I would not have him offer sacrifice on my behalf to devils, and all the while I was myself offering them sacrifice by the superstition I was in. For surely to feed them, that is by our error to become their sport and their derision, is to feed the winds. Chapter 3 For the impostors who were called mathematicians, astrologers, I did not scruple to consult, because they offered no sacrifice and directed no prayers to any spirit to aid their divination. Yet true Christian piety necessarily rejects and condemns their art. For it is good to confess unto thee, Lord, and say, Be merciful to me, heal my soul, for I have sinned against thee, and not to misuse thy mercy as a license to sin, but to remember the words of our Lord, Behold, thou art made whole, sin no more, lest some worse thing happen to thee. 
All this saving truth the astrologers strive to destroy when they teach that the inevitable cause of sin is in the heavens, that it is in the doing of Venus or Saturn or Mars. In other words, that man, flesh and blood and proud corruption, is guiltless, and that the guilt lies with the Creator and Ruler of heaven and the stars of heaven. And he is none other than our God, very loveliness and wellspring of justice, who shall render to every man according to his works, and a broken and a contrite heart wilt thou not despise. The proconsul at that time was a man of much wisdom, skilled in medicine and famed for his skill. He set upon my distempered head the wreath I won in the contest, but not as a healer of my distemper. For that disease you alone cure who resist the proud and give grace to the humble. Yet you did not fail to aid me through that old man and to use him for the healing of my soul. I came to know him better and pay the closest attention to his words, for without particular pretense his talk was at once grave and gay from the sheer vitality of his thought. When I told him that I was much given to the books of the horoscope-casters, with much fatherly kindness he advised me to throw them away, and not waste upon such nonsense, time, and trouble that could be put to better use. He told me that in his earlier years he had had some idea of studying that same art, and indeed of making it his profession. Obviously, since he had understood Hippocrates, he was quite able to understand this other kind of learning as well. But he had given it up and concentrated upon the study of medicine simply because he had found it false and, as an honest man, had no desire to make his living by cheating people. But you, he said, have the profession of rhetoric to support yourself by and are pursuing this astrological nonsense voluntarily and not through financial necessity. Therefore you ought all the more to trust me in the matter, for when I sought to attain sufficient skill in it, it was because I meant to make it my sole means of livelihood. I asked him how he explained the fact that many things were foretold truly by it, he answered, very reasonably, that it was due to the force of chance, which is always to be allowed for in the order of things. Thus, if one happened to consult the pages of some poet who was singing and thinking of quite other matters, the eye often fell on a verse quite extraordinarily relevant to the matter in one's own mind. And, he said, it was not more extraordinary if from the mind of man, by some higher but quite blind instinct, not by art but merely by chance, things should sometimes emerge that should seem to have a bearing upon the affairs and actions of the inquirer. Surely it was you who from him or through him procured this for me and gave my memory the hint of the answer that I was later to arrive at for myself. But at the time neither he nor my close friend Nebridius, a young man of great worth and high moral character who laughed at the whole business of divination, could persuade me to give up these studies. The authority of the writers of the book still had the greater power with me, and I had not yet found the certain proof I sought that would settle beyond doubt that the truths they foretold came by chance or luck and not by the art of the stargazers. Chapter 4 during the period in which I first began to teach in the town of my birth, I had found a very dear friend who was pursuing similar studies. He was about my own age and was now coming, as I was, to the very flowering time of young manhood. He had indeed grown up with me as a child, and we had gone to school together and played together. Neither in those earlier days, nor indeed in the later time of which I now speak, was he a friend in the truest meaning of friendship, for there is no true friendship unless you weld it between souls that cleave together through that charity which is shed in our hearts by the Holy Ghost who is given to us. Yet it had become a friendship very dear to us, made the warmer by the ardor of studies pursued together. I had turned him from the true faith, in which being little more than a boy he was not deeply grounded, towards those superstitious and soul-destroying errors that my mother bewailed in me. With me he went astray in error, and my soul could not be without him. But you are ever close upon the heels of those who flee from you, for you are at once God of vengeance and fount of mercy, and you turn us to yourself by ways most wonderful." You took this man from the life of earth when he had completed scarcely a year in a friendship that had grown sweeter to me than all the sweetness of the life I knew. What man could recount all your praises for the things he has experienced in his own single person? What was it, O oh my God, that you accomplished then, and how unsearchable is the abyss of your judgments? 
for he was in a high fever, and when he had for a long time lain unconscious in a deathly sweat so that his life was despaired of, he was baptized. Naturally, he knew nothing of it, and I paid little heed, since I took for granted that his mind would retain what he had learned from me, and not what was done upon his body while he was unconscious. But it turned out very differently. The fever left him, and he recovered. As soon as I could speak to him, which was as soon as he could speak to me, for I had not left him, and indeed we depended too much upon each other, I began to mock, assuming that he would join me in mocking, the baptism which he had received when he had neither sense nor feeling. For by now he had been told of it, but he looked at me as if I had been his deadly enemy, and in a burst of independence that startled me, warned me that if I wished to continue his friend, I must cease that kind of talk. I was stupefied and deeply perturbed. I postponed telling him of my feelings until he should be well again, and thus in such condition of health and strength that I could discuss what was in my mind. But he was snatched from the reach of my folly, that he might be safe with you for my future consolation. Within a few days he relapsed into his fever and died, and I was not there. My heart was black with grief. Whatever I looked upon had the air of death. My native place was a prison house, and my home a strange unhappiness. The things we had done together became sheer torment without him. My eyes were restless looking for him, but he was not there. I hated all places because he was not in them. They could not say, he will come soon, as they would in his life when he was absent. I became a great enigma to myself, and I was forever asking my soul why it was sad, and why it disquieted me so sorely, and my soul knew not what to answer me. If I said, trust in God, my soul did not obey, naturally because the man whom she had loved and lost was nobler and more real than the imagined deity in whom I was bidding her trust. I had no delight but in tears, for tears had taken the place my friend had held in the love of my heart. Chapter 5 But now, Lord, all that has passed, and time has dulled the ache of the wound. May I learn from you who are truth. May I make the ear of my heart attentive to the word of your mouth, that you may tell me why tears are so sweet to the sorrowful. Have you, for all that you are everywhere, cast our misery from you? You abide in yourself. We are tossed from trial to trial. Yet if we might not utter our sorrow to your ears, nothing should remain for our hope. How does it come then that from the bitterness of life we can pluck fruit so sweet as is in mourning and weeping and sighing and the utterance of our woe? Are all these things such relief to our misery because of our hope that you hear them? Obviously this is so of our prayers because they are uttered with the sole aim of reaching you. But is it so also of the sorrow and grief for a thing lost in which I was then overwhelmed? I had no hope of bringing him back to life, nor for all my tears did I ask for this. Simply I grieved and wept, for I was in misery and had lost my joy. Or is weeping really a bitter thing, pleasing to us only from a distaste for the things we once enjoyed, and only while the distaste remains keen? Chapter 6 But why do I speak of these things? I should not be asking questions, but making my confession to you. I was wretched, and every soul is wretched that is bound in affection of mortal things. It is tormented to lose them, and in their loss becomes aware of the wretchedness which in reality it had even before it lost them. Such was I at that time and I wept most bitterly, and in that bitterness found my only repose. I was wretched, yet I held my wretched life dearer than the friend for whose loss I was wretched. For although I would have liked to change the unhappiness of my life, yet I was more unwilling to lose my life itself than I had been to lose my friend. And I doubt if I would have been willing to lose it even to be with him, as the tradition is, whether true or false, of Orestes and Pleiades, who wanted to die for each other and both together, because for either, life without the other was worse than death. But in me there was an odd kind of feeling, the exact opposite of theirs, for I was at once utterly weary of life and in great fear of death. It may be that the more I loved him, the more I hated and feared, as the cruelest enemy, that death which had taken him from me, and I was filled with the thought that it might snatch away any man as suddenly as it had snatched him. 
That this was then my mind I still remember. Behold my heart, O my God, look deep within it. See how I remember, O my hope, you who cleanse me from all the uncleanness of such affections, directing my eyes towards you and plucking my feet out of the snare. I wondered that other mortals should live when he was dead, whom I had loved as if he would never die. And I marveled still more that he should be dead, and I his other self living still. Rightly has a friend been called the half of my soul, for I thought of my soul and his soul as one soul and two bodies, and my life was a horror to me, because I would not live halved. And it may be that I feared to die, lest thereby he should die wholly, whom I had loved so deeply. Chapter 7 O madness that knows not how to love men as men! O foolish man to bear the lot of man so rebelliously! I had both the madness and the folly. I raged and sighed and wept and was in torment, unable to rest, unable to think. I bore my soul all broken and bleeding and loathing to be borne by me, and I could find nowhere to set it down to rest. Not in shady groves, nor in mirth and music, nor in perfumed gardens, nor in formal banquets, nor in the delights of bedroom and bed. Not in books, nor in poetry could it find peace. I hated all things, hated the very light itself. And all that was not he was painful and wearisome, save only my tears, for in them alone did I find a little peace. When my soul gave over weeping, it was still crushed under the great burden of a misery which only by you, Lord, could be lightened and lifted. This I knew, but I had neither the will nor the strength, and what made it more impossible was that when I thought of you, it was not as of something firm and solid, for my God was not yet you, but the error and vain fantasy I held. When I tried to rest my burden upon that, it fell as through emptiness and was once more heavy upon me, and I remained to myself a place of unhappiness in which I could not abide, yet from which I could not depart. For where was my heart to flee for refuge from my heart? Whither was I to fly from myself? To what place should I not follow myself? Yet leave my native place I did, for my eyes would look for him less where they had not been accustomed to see him. I left the town of Tagast and came to Carthage. Chapter 8 Time takes no holiday. It does not roll idly by, but through our senses works its own wonders in the mind. Time came and went from one day to the next. In its coming and its passing it brought me other hopes and other memories, and little by little patched me up again with the kind of delights which had once been mine, and which in my grief I had abandoned. The place of that great grief was slowly taken, not perhaps by new griefs, but by the seeds from which new grief should spring. For that first grief had pierced so easily and so deep only because I had spilt out my soul upon the sand, in loving a mortal man as if he were never to die. At any rate, the comfort I found in other friends, and the pleasure I had with them in things of earth, did much to repair and remake me. And it was all one huge fable, one long lie, and by its adulterous caressing, my soul, which lay itching in my ears, was utterly corrupted, for my folly did not die whenever one of my friends died. All kinds of things rejoiced my soul in their company, to talk and laugh and do each other kindnesses, read pleasant books together, pass from lightest jesting to talk of the deepest things and back again, differ without rancor, as a man might differ with himself, and when most rarely dissension arose, find our normal agreement all the sweeter for it, teach each other or learn from each other, be impatient for the return of the absent, and welcome them with joy on their homecoming. These and such like things, proceeding from our hearts as we gave affection and received it back, and shown by face, by voice, by the eyes, and a thousand other pleasing ways, kindled a flame which fused our very souls, and of many made us one. Chapter 9 This is what men value in friends, and value so much that their conscience judges them guilty if they do not meet friendship with friendship, expecting nothing from their friends save such evidences of his affection. This is the root of our grief when a friend dies, and the blackness of our sorrow, and the steeping of the heart in tears for the joy that has turned to bitterness, and the feeling as though we were dead because he is dead, 
Blessed is the man that loves thee, O God, and his friend in thee, and his enemy for thee. For he alone loses no one that is dear to him, if all are dear in God, who is never lost. And who is that God but our God, the God who made heaven and earth, who fills them because it is by filling them with himself that he has made them? No man loses thee unless he goes from thee, and in going from thee, where does he go or where does he flee, save from thee to thee, from God well pleased to God angered? For where shall he not find thy law fulfilled in his punishment? Thy law is truth, and truth is thou. Chapter 10 Convert us, O God of hosts, and show us thy face, and we shall be saved. Wherever the soul of man turns, unless towards God, it cleaves to sorrow, even though the things outside God and outside itself to which it cleaves may be things of beauty. For these lovely things would be nothing at all unless they were from him. They rise and set. In their rising they begin to be, and they grow towards perfection, and once come to perfection they grow old and they die. Not all grow old, but all die. Therefore, when they rise and tend toward being, the more haste they make toward fullness of being, the more haste they make toward ceasing to be. That is their law. You have given them to be parts of a whole. They are not all existent at once, but in their departures and successions constitute the whole of which they are parts. Our own speech, which we utter by making sounds signifying meanings, follows the same principles. For there never could be a whole sentence unless one word ceased to be when its syllables had sounded and another took its place. In all such things let my soul praise you, O God, Creator of all things, but let it not cleave too close in love to them through the senses of the body. For they go their way and are no more, and they rend the soul with desires that can destroy it, for it longs to be with the things it loves and to repose in them. But in them is no place of repose, because they do not abide. They pass, and who can follow them with any bodily sense? Or who can grasp them firm even while they are still here? Our fleshly sense is slow because it is fleshly sense, and that is the limit of its being. It can do what it was made to do, but it has no power to hold things transient as they run their course from their due beginning to their due end. For in your word, by which they are created, they hear their law. From this point, not beyond that. Chapter 11 Be not foolish, my soul, nor let the ear of your heart be deafened with the clamor of your folly. Listen, the word himself calls you to return, and with him is the place of peace that shall not be broken where your love will not be forsaken unless it first forsake. Things pass that other things may come in their place, and this material universe be established in all its parts. But do I depart anywhere, says the word of God? Fix your dwelling in Him. Commit to God whatsoever you have, for it is from God. O my soul, wearied at last with emptiness, commit to truth's keeping whatever truth has given you, and you shall not lose any. And what is decayed in you shall be made clean, and what is sick shall be made well and what is transient shall be reshaped and made new and established in you in firmness. And they shall not set you down where they themselves go, but shall stand and abide and you with them, before God who stands and abides forever. Why, O perverse soul of mine, will you go on following your flesh? Rather turn and let it follow you. Whatever things you perceive by fleshly sense, you perceive only in part, not knowing the whole of which those things are, but parts, and yet they delight you so much. For if fleshly sense had been capable of grasping the whole, and had not for your punishment received part only of the whole as its just limit, you would wish that whatever exists in the present might pass on, that the whole might be perceived by you for your delight. What we speak, you hear by a bodily sense, and certainly you do not wish the same syllable to go on sounding, but to pass away that other syllables may come, and you may hear the whole speech. It is always so with all things that go to make up one whole. All that goes to make up the whole does not exist at one moment. If all could be perceived in one act of perception, it would obviously give more delight than any of the individual parts. 
But far better than all is he who made all, and he is our God. He does not pass away, and there is none to take his place. Chapter 12 If material things please you, then praise God for them. But turn back your love upon him who made them, lest in the things that please you, you displease him. If souls please you, then love them in God, because they are mutable in themselves, but in him firmly established. Without him they would pass and perish. Love them, I say, in him, and draw as many souls with you to him as you can, saying to them, Him let us love, he made this world and is not far from it. For he did not simply make it and leave it, but as it is from him, so it is in him. See where he is, wherever there is a savour of truth. He is in the most secret place of the heart, yet the heart has strayed from him. O sinners, return to your own heart and abide in him that made you. Stand with him and you shall stand, rest in him and you shall be at peace. Where are you going? To what bleak places? Where are you going? The good that you love is from him, and insofar as it is likewise for him, it is good and lovely. But it will rightly be turned into bitterness if it is unrightly loved, and he deserted by whom it is. What goal are you making for, wandering around and about by ways so hard and laborious? Rest is not where you seek it. Seek what you seek, but it is not where you seek it. You seek happiness of life in the land of death, and it is not there. For how shall there be happiness of life where there is no life? But our life came down to this our earth and took away our death, slew death with the abundance of his own life. And he thundered, calling to us to return to him into that secret place from which he came forth to us, coming first into the virgin's womb, where humanity was wedded to him, our mortal flesh, though not always to be mortal, and thence like a bridegroom coming out of his bride chamber, rejoicing as a giant to run his course. For he did not delay, but rushed on, calling to us by what he said and what he did, calling to us by his death, life, descent, and ascension to return to him. And he withdrew from our eyes, that we might return to our own heart and find him. For he went away, and behold, he is still here. He would not be with us long, yet he did not leave us. He went back to that place which he had never left, for the world was made by him. And he was in this world, and he came into this world to save sinners. Unto him my soul confesses, and he hears it, for it has sinned against him. O ye sons of men, how long will you be so slow of heart? Even now when life has come down to you, will you not ascend and live? But to what high place shall you climb, since you are in a high place and have set your mouth against the heavens? First descend, that you may ascend, ascend to God. For in mounting up against God you fell. Tell the souls of men to weep in this valley of tears, and so bear them up with you to God, because it is by His Spirit that you are speaking this to them, if in your speaking you are on fire with the fire of charity. Chapter 13 But these things I did not at that time know, and I was in love with those lower beauties. I was sinking into the very depths, and I said to my friends, Do we love anything save what is beautiful? What then is beautiful, and what is beauty? What is it that allures us and delights us in the things that we love? Unless there were grace and beauty in them, they could not possibly draw us to them. Looking deeper, I saw that in things themselves we must distinguish between the beauty which belongs to the whole in itself and the becomingness which results from right relations to some other thing as a part of the body to the whole body, or a shoe to the foot, and such like. This thought surged up into my mind from the very depths of my heart, and I composed certain books, De Pulcro et Opto, on the beautiful and the fitting, two books or three, I fancy. You know, O God, for I do not remember. I no longer have them. Somehow or other they have been lost. Chapter 14 What was it, O Lord my God, that moved me to dedicate these books to Hyrius, an orator of Rome? I had never seen him, but I was won to him for the fame of his learning, which was indeed very notable and I had heard things he had said which seemed to me admirable. But he pleased me mainly because he pleased others. They praised him highly, amazed that a Syrian, brought up on Greek, should afterwards prove so wonderful a speaker in the Latin tongue, 
amazed too at his great learning in the field of philosophy. Thus a man is praised, and we love him, though we have in fact never seen him. Does such a love pass from the lips of the one who praises into the heart of the one who hears the praise? Not at all. Simply one lover is inflamed by another. That is why we are one to a man we hear praised only if we believe that the praise comes from a sincere heart, that is, when the praise is uttered by one who truly loves. Thus I then loved men upon the judgment of men, but not upon your judgments, my God, in whom no man is deceived. But yet it is to be noted that the feeling I had for such men was not like the feeling I had for some great charioteer, say, or fighter with beasts, whose popularity was so great with the crowd. I admired them far differently, and for more serious reasons, admired them indeed as I would myself wish to have been admired. I certainly had no desire to be praised and liked as actors are, though I myself both like them and praise them. For myself I would have chosen to remain utterly unknown rather than so known, and to be hated rather than so loved. How are the balances of these varied and diverse loves so distributed within one soul? How is it that I admire equality in another, and yet seem to hate it too, since I should detest and despise it in myself? After all, he and I are both men. It is not as a man might admire a good horse, and yet have no desire to be a horse, even if he could manage it. The matter of myself and the actor is different, for he and I share the same nature. How then do I admire a man for being what I should hate to be, although I too am a man? Man is a great deep, Lord. You number his very hairs, and they are not lost in your sight. But the hairs of his head are easier to number than his affections and the movements of his heart. But that orator, whom I so admired, was the kind of man that I should have wished myself to be, and I erred through swollen pride, and I was blown about by every wind. And you steered my course for me too hiddenly. And I know now, and with sure confidence confess to you, that I loved the man more for the love of those who praised him than for the qualities for which he was praised. If those same people had not praised but abused him, and had described the very same qualities in him, abusively and with scorn, I should not have been kindled towards him, nor brought to admire him. Yet obviously the qualities would have been the same, and the man himself not different. Only the attitude of the speakers would have been different. Thus the soul is prostrate and helpless when it does not adhere to the stability of truth. According as the winds of speech blow from the lungs of those who think they know, so is the soul twisted and turned, and twisted and turned again, and the light shines not for it, and it cannot see the truth. Yet the truth is right before it. I thought I should be very much the gainer if my style and my ideas might come to the knowledge of so famous a man. If he thought well of them, I should be still more on fire for him. But if he thought ill, my vain heart, all void of your stability, would have been wounded deep. All the same, I enjoyed setting my meditation to work upon the theme of the beautiful and the fitting which I dedicated to him, and with no one else to admire it, I admired it myself. Chapter 15 But I had not yet seen that this great matter of the beautiful and the fitting turns upon your workmanship, O Almighty, by whom alone all things marvelous are done, and my mind considered only corporeal forms. I defined and distinguished the beautiful as that which is so of itself, the fitting as that which is excellent in its relation of fitness to some other thing and it was by corporeal examples that I supported my argument. I did consider the nature of the soul, but again the false view I had of spiritual things would not let me get at the truth, although by its sheer force the truth was staring me in the face. I turned my throbbing mind away from the incorporeal to line and color and bulk, and because I did not see these things in my mind, I concluded that I could not see my mind. Further, loving the peace I saw in virtue and hating the discord in vice, I noted the unity of the one and the dividedness of the other, and it seemed to me that in the unity lay the rational mind and the nature of truth and the supreme good. But in the dividedness I thought I saw some substance of irrational life and the nature of a supreme evil. This evil I saw not only as substance but even as life. And yet, poor wretch, I held that it was not from you, my God, from whom all things are. 
I called the first a monad, seeing it as a mind without sex, and the other I called a dyad, the anger I saw in deeds of violence, the lust I saw in deeds of impurity. But I was talking blindly, for I did not as yet know, I had not been taught, that evil was not any substance, nor was this soul of ours the supreme and immutable good. Just as we have sins against others if our emotion, in which lies the impetus to act, is vicious and thrust forward arrogantly and without measure, and damage to self if that affection of the soul whence carnal desires rise is ungoverned, Similarly, errors and false opinions contaminate life if the rational soul itself is corrupted. So was my soul at that time, for I did not realize that it had to be illumined by another light if it was to be a partaker of truth, because it is not itself the essence of truth. For thou lightest my lamp, O Lord, O my God, enlighten my darkness, and of thy fullness we have all received. For thou art the true light which enlighteneth every man that cometh into this world, because in thee there is neither change nor shadow of alteration. But I was at once striving towards you and thrust back from you, so that I knew the taste of death, for you resist the proud. What could be worse pride than the incredible folly in which I asserted that I was by nature what you are? Since I was not myself immutable, as was clear enough from the fact of my desire to become wise and change from worse to better, I chose rather to think you mutable than to think I was not as you are. Thus I was thrust back. You resisted my windy pride, so that I went on imagining corporeal forms. And being flesh, I accused the flesh, and being a wayfaring spirit, I did not return to you, but in my drifting was borne on towards imaginings which have no reality either in you, or in me, or in the body, and were not created for me by your truth, but were invented by my own folly, playing upon matter. And I spoke much to the little ones of your flock, my own fellow citizens, from whom I was in exile, though I did not know it. And like the argumentative fool that I was, I put to them the question, Why does the soul err if God created it? But I would not have anyone ask me, why then does God err? And I preferred to maintain that your immutable substance had been constrained to suffer error rather than admit that my own mutable substance had gone astray through its own fault and fallen into error for its punishment. I was around twenty-six or twenty-seven when I wrote these books, resolving within my mind the corporeal imaginings whose clamor filled the ears of my heart, while I was straining them, O loveliness of truth, to catch your inner melody, meditating upon the beautiful and the fitting, and yearning that I might stand and hearken to you and rejoice with joy for the voice of the bridegroom. But for this I had not the strength. I was drawn out of myself by the voices of my error, and went falling ever lower through the sheer weight of my own pride. You did not make me to hear joy and gladness, nor did the bones exult which were not yet humbled. Chapter 16 And what did it profit me that when I was barely twenty years old there came into my hands, and I read and understood, alone and unaided, the book of Aristotle's Ten Categories? a book I had longed for as for some great and divine work, because the master who taught me rhetoric at Carthage and others held learned mouthed its name with such evident pride. I compared notes with others who admitted that they had scarcely managed to understand the book, even with the most learned masters not merely lecturing upon it, but making many diagrams in the dust, and they could not tell me anything of it that I had not discovered in reading it for myself. For it seemed to me clear enough that what the book had to say of substances, like man, and of the accidents that are in substances, like the figure of a man, what sort of man he is, and of his stature, how many feet high, and of his family relationships, whose brother he is, or where he is placed, or when he was born, or whether he is standing or sitting, or has his shoes on, or is armed, or whether he is doing something or having something done to him, and all the other countless things that are to be put either in these nine categories of which I have given examples, or in the chief category of substance. Not only did all this not profit me, it actually did me harm, in that I tried to understand you, my God, marvelous in your simplicity and immutability, while imagining that whatsoever had being was to be found within these ten categories, as if you were a substance in which inhered your own greatness or beauty, as they might inhere in a body. 
In fact, your greatness and your beauty are yourself, whereas a body is not large and beautiful merely by being a body, because it would still be a body even if it were less large and less beautiful. The idea I had of you was falsehood and not truth, a fiction of my own littleness, not the solid ground of your beatitude. For it was your command, and so it came to pass in me, that the earth should bring forth thorns and thistles for me, and that in the sweat of my brow I should eat my bread. And what did it profit me that I read and understood for myself all the books of what are called the liberal arts that I was able to get hold of, since I remained the vile slave of evil desires? I enjoyed the books while not knowing him from whom came whatever was true or certain in them. For I had my back to the light and my face to the things upon which the light falls, so that my eyes by which I looked upon the things in the light were not themselves illumined. Whatever was written either of the art of rhetoric or of logic, of the dimensions of figures or music or arithmetic, I understood with no great difficulty and no need of an instructor. This you know, Lord my God, because swiftness of understanding and keenness of perceiving are your gift. But none of this did I offer in sacrifice to you. Therefore it was not for my profit, but rather for my harm, that I labored so to have so great a part of my substance in my own power, and preserved my strength, but not for you, going from you into a far country to waste my substance upon loves that were only harlots. For what did it profit me to have good ability, since I did not use it well? I did not discover that these matters were very difficult even for the studious and intelligent to grasp until I tried to teach them to others, and that pupil was regarded as the most excellent who could follow my exposition least laggingly. But what did all this profit me while I held that you, Lord God of truth, were a luminous, immeasurable body, and I a kind of particle broken from that body? It was an extreme of perverseness, but so I then was, and I do not now blush to confess to you the mercies you have shown me, O my God, and to call upon you, any more than I then blush to profess my blasphemies before men and to bark at you. Of what use to me then was my intelligence, swift to run clear through those sciences, of what use were all those naughty books I unraveled without the aid of any human teacher, when in the doctrine of love of you I erred so far and so foully and so sacrilegiously? Of what great harm to your little ones was their far slower intelligence, since they strayed not far from you, and so could fledge their wings in safety in the nest of your church, and nourish the wings of charity with the food of solid faith? O Lord our God, let us hope in the protecting shadow of thy wings. Guard us and bear us up. Bear us up thou wilt, as tiny infants, and on to our gray hairs. For when thou art our strength, it is strength indeed. But when our strength is our own, it is only weakness. With thee our good ever lives, and when we are averted from thee, we are perverted. Let us now return to thee, O Lord, that we may not be overturned. For with thee lives without any defect our good which is thyself. We have no fear that there should be no place of return, merely because by our own act we fell from it. Our absence does not cause our home to fall, which is thy eternity. 